Welcome, everyone. Episode 83 of the Matt Jones podcast. Uh, we haven't done one of these in a little while, but I was taking a little bit of time off. Um, we are hoping football season starts here in a few weeks. So if it does, we'll be able to get some football guests on. Cross your fingers. But I wanted to do this one as a for a variety of reasons, one of which is when I had defense attorney Steve Romines on, back a couple months ago. I know a lot of you folks really liked it, but I had a lot of people say, I think correctly, okay, Matt, if you're going to have him on. You need to have some somebody to speak uh, kind of for and on the side of police. And I said I, that was a very fair request. So a number of people recommended this gentleman, and I appreciate him taking the time. He's a former state police commissioner and currently the police chief uh, in Jefferson Town. Rick Sanders, and uh, I'm going to call you Rick if that's okay, but uh, thank you very much for taking the time. That's fine, Matt. Uh, it's a pleasure being with you. Okay, well, let's start with this. I, you know, just as a broad point, all that has happened since that video back in early June uh, with the George Floyd situation, it has really been a very difficult few months, I would think, for everyone. Talk to me about what it's been like from the side of law enforcement specifically since all this began? Well, I think it dates back even further than that. Uh, you know, when, when um, Michael Brown was killed in Ferguson, that spun up a lot of conversation about police use of force. But uh, I, I think when, uh, when we saw what happened in Minneapolis with George Floyd, that brought us all pain. Uh, I've not talked to a police officer yet that says that was a good uh, move, that, that, that what he did was, was right. Everybody I've talked to says that's, that's an extremely uh, unprofessional, uncalled for, and, and that gentleman should face charges, which he is. When you see something like that, and you, you, let's go to that video, when you see that, every officer I've talked to has said the same thing you just said. Do you get a sense of, oh, no, this is tragic, but also this is going to make things difficult? I mean, does that, enter, like, do you think about it like that? Sure. I think both. I think this is tragic. Uh, and I do think this is going to cause, uh, it's going to bring a black eye to law enforcement and tarnish the, tarnish the badge of every law enforcement officer out there that's trying to do his or her duty well every day. But we're all going to fade uh, some heat on that. And uh, I think it's, it's right to, to have discussion among the police and the community on why that's wrong and what we can do to improve the process. I want you to talk me through, I mean, I, I think everybody saw the, the video and knew that the officer who had his knee on, his ne on the guy's neck, on George Floyd's neck, that that was wrong. I think the hard thing for me personally was actually not him but the other three officers, the two that were sort of holding his legs and then the one that's just watching. Part of what was difficult for me is how does that happen? What, what, what do you think about that? Like, how do you have a situation where not only is that going on, but three people are kind of just watching it happen? Yeah, well, I agree with you. I think that we're all asking those same questions. Uh, the one officer I know that had a total of three days on the job had just come out of the academy and I'm sure he's wishing he had, wow, uh, I didn't, I didn't realize that. Only three days. Unbelievable. Yeah, so, you know, he 
he's taught in the academy all the do's and the don'ts, but he's on the job three days. And I'm sure he's thinking to himself, do I intervene? Do I not intervene? And, you know, we all wish that those officers had, had, officers had intervened uh, when they saw what was going on, because to every police officer I have talked to, uh, 100% agree that what he did was wrong and somebody should have corrected him and, and, and if nothing else pulled him off of him. I don't know. We don't know yet what he died of. Uh, I've heard that it may have been uh, you know, narcotics. It may have been suffocation. It might have been a lot of things. But, but regardless of what he died on, of uh, that, that was uh, not, a, not a proper arrest technique. So, you know, everybody makes mistakes. But I think there's a level where an officer sort of can't make those mistakes. Would you agree? I mean, there's a there's a sense of where maybe something that, you know, the average person would do. I've had people say to me, Matt, how would you feel if X or Y happened? And I feel like you have to hold officers to a higher standard. Do you agree with that? I agree with that. I think officers should be held to a higher standard. But, you know, Matt, when I was the state police commissioner for almost four years, I, I fired several troopers for, for making mistakes. And, you know, we all make mistakes. In my career, I'm sure I've made mistakes. But there's a level in which we just have to take uh, necessary uh, termination procedures, put them in place, and and that happens. It happens everywhere. So you know the thing that I like to talk about is, is of the 800,000 cops there are in the United States, there there are only well of the 10 million arrests made every year, less than four percent result in use of force situations. So the sad thing is everything that we do now is, is videotaped. And if we do make a mistake, then that's gonna be played on, on YouTube, on nightly news over and over and over again, uh, making it look as though we're doing this every day. And we're not, these things have happened, uh, but, but the majority of the police officers that I know come to work every day, trying to do what is right, try to serve and, and protect the public, and it's unfortunate that we have some officers that uh, uh, get get out of the uh, get out of bounds and cause us all grief and aggravation. Well, let's talk about some systematic stuff. You mentioned that you've terminated officers. One of the criticisms. I'm a union guy, so like I, I I'm a big union supporter. Uh, I think they're very important um, on a lot of levels. I've heard though during this process the criticisms of it is too difficult to fire police officers that, you know, even in the Breonna Taylor case, it took them a long time to even fire Hankinson who had a huge rap sheet in some ways. Do you think it is too hard to get rid of bad officers? I don't. And, you know, just like the unions, they, they, they became part of our society because there was a need because employees were being, uh, treated unfairly, the unions came in and defended those employees that were being treated unfairly. The same thing with the Policeman's Bill of Rights. It's called KRS 15520, and it outlines what we can and can't do as far as we being chiefs and or uh, mayors and, and city officials with regard to policeman misconduct. And I've heard it said before that the mayor of Louisville can't fire a policeman because of the policeman's bill of rights. And that's just absolutely not true. Uh, there are cases that, that I could cite where policemen have been fired immediately. 
there's one case I remember up in Indiana where an LMPD officer was intoxicated involved in a domestic dispute, uh, wrecked his car into a business and it was videotaped and abusing his wife. That officer was fired immediately because there was no question as to what, uh, w what, what the circumstances were. But in a lot of cases, there are unanswered questions that have to be answered. And the policeman, just like everyone else, is entitled to due process. Officers can be fired. However, if they are fired and it goes to a merit board or a civil service commission or to a district court, circuit court, and they get their job back, that they are entitled to back pay and their job back. But there's nothing that prohibits a chief or, or a commissioner from firing a police officer. So the, I had Steve Romines on and he I actually, it was a couple months ago, I actually re-listened to his podcast this weekend to try to sort of, I wanted to allow you to address some of his points. And one of the things he said was, that he thinks there is, and there's, he's not the first person to say this, sort of a badge of silence that basically says that officers will all take up for each other and that the ones that don't, if they see misconduct and don't say anything, they're ultimately shunned and that they, it makes it harder for them to advance, et cetera. When you hear that argument, do you think there's any validity to that or not? I think there, should, there could be some validity to that, but I can tell you, Without exception, I have never witnessed that. And I've been a policeman a long time. I think, I think we are much more professional uh, today than we were 20 or 30 years ago when I was policing. And I think, is, is there a blue code? I would say yes, there is a blue code in that we are taught to take care of one another, to keep each other safe. But nowhere in there, as a matter of fact, to the contrary, we are taught if you see someone doing something unethical, unlawful, then you have a duty to intervene. You have to do that. Well, let me ask you a question on that real quick. I think because we only see these cases when something goes wrong, to your point earlier, we don't know that that happens. Like, I, I, you know, we don't get a lot of public scrutiny that says officers stepped in to stop another officer. Does that happen a lot and we just don't know it? It does happen. And, and I can tell you from personal experience, uh, you know, a, a, a car chase where you're chasing someone for a, for a pretty good period of time. You know, the adrenaline's pumping. When you get there, the, a lot of officers then will respond and apprehend that person. I, I have told someone before, hey, back off, come on. You, you know, you, you're, 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 you, gotta, you gotta back off of this because I feared they were going to do something excessive or, or they may be in the process of getting geared up to do that. And I have personally stopped them from doing that. So. I do know that there are officers, most officers out there will step in and stop a partner or, or a B partner or somebody from doing something that's unethical, unlawful, or, or just immoral. I mean, it happens, but, but I'm not going to sit here and tell you that it always happens. There are exceptions to everything. And, and I think the George Floyd case is a perfect example of that exception. Do you think it's fair to say, though, that let's say a disciplinary action is taken against an officer, that an officer who testifies against them or rats on them, that that will have a negative effect on their career? I do not. I think it's just, no, it's just the opposite. I mean, look at the case uh, recently here in Jefferson County where a, a rogue detective is, is, uh, is being, uh, he was charged with uh, lying and, and fabricating evidence. There were other officers who testified against him. 
So I think that's, that's what needs to happen. Uh, and, and I think it does happen in most cases, but, but to tell you that there are no exceptions, I can't tell you that because yeah. there are. Yeah. Well, I mean, that would be true of any profession. So I, uh, l- let me ask you, this is a hard question to ask just big picture, but I'm interested what your initial reaction is to this question. Do you believe that there is systematic, either conscious or unconscious bias against African-Americans in the policing system? You know, I think there's bias in every walk of life. I mean, uh, the the way we're brought up, the way we're taught, the way our parents teach us, we all have biases. But, you know, I just get troubled when I hear the police being blamed for everything that's going wrong in society. Uh, You know, we, we don't talk about the the breakdown in family, the breakdown in community, or the, or the lack of education, or, or or all the things leading to someone being disadvantaged. And uh, yeah, is there bias? There's bias in everything, Matt. But I'm 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 really getting tired of people pointing and singling out the police for being the bad guys and saying we're all racist because we're not. Is there racism in policing? Yes. Is there racism in our society? Yes. But is everyone a racist? No, most of the people- okay. Well, let me let me let me ask you that because I, I believe you on that. I do, I do not believe every cop is a racist. I I, I think that would that's ridiculous. Um, and I also agree with you that racism is, racism exists all over society, and it certainly is not just in a police department. But when it comes to the police, back to something we said earlier, shouldn't that standard because the police are the one organization that we require to sort of govern society and to make sure it's as fair as possible that the laws are applied equally. Shouldn't that be a standard where we just can't accept any racism? Yes. Yes. However, the police profession is a microcosm of our society. Yes. We're all different. We're all raised differently. And, And I think that needs to be discussed and admitted. Uh, so, so to say that we're only going to hire you if, if we know for a fact that you have zero bias and, and we know everything there is to know about you, we can predict how you're going to respond to every run. It's just impossible. We can't do that. So the numbers, when we see, you know, there are studies that say African-Americans are more likely not just to commit crimes, but to randomly be pulled over. There are studies that say, you know, um, that, well, my law career is blanking on my head. The stops that, you know, pre pretextual stops, that they are more likely to occur to African Americans than 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 to white people. Do you believe those studies and why do you think that happens? Well, I think it depends upon where you're policing. When I was the commissioner of the Kentucky State Police, we were policing eastern and western Kentucky, where it's predominantly white communities. But I still got complaints from people saying I was stopped unnecessarily, uh, you used unnecessary force. So a lot depends upon geography. In the city of Louisville, uh, there, there are certain parts of town where there's more crime than others. So as a police chief, you're gonna put most of your assets in that particular area. So are there gonna be more people pulled over in that area? Absolutely, there's going to be more. However, what troubles me is when I see, and, and as I said before, everything we do now is on video. 
But when I see officers pulling over an African-American simply because he didn't use a turn signal, that makes me mad. You Does know, it really? I mean, like, I mean, it, it, because that happens. It happens, and that's just not good police work. Police work should be intelligence-led. We should identify who the gangbangers are, who the criminals are, and focus on them, and not just pull randomly people over trying to develop some probable cause. But are there more African-Americans pulled over? Yeah, uh, in that particular part of the, the state. But in, in Pikeville or Hazard or Harlan, that's not the case because there are more police on white at that point. I had one experience, and I'm not asking you to justify this experience, obviously, because this wasn't, you all wasn't even in Louisville, it was in Lexington. But I had one experience. I used to sort of think, eh, well, I'll be honest with you. I used to think, well, they, they, they probably get pulled over more because exactly what you said. They're in areas where there's more crime. And then I was with a friend of mine in the backseat, African-American driving. We were in a predominantly white neighborhood, and then he was pulled over. And the, the whole questioning was kind of a, what are you doing here? situation. Why are you here? And Mark Stoops was on my show, the UK football coach, and talked about how one of his former players uh, refused to walk in the coach's neighborhood because he was like, coach, if I walk in this neighborhood, I'm getting, the police are getting called. What do we do about that? I mean, that does happen. What do we do about it? Well, I think, again, we go back to when, when those sorts of things happen, it upsets me because that's not good police work. Good police work should be led with reasonable suspicion or probable cause before that stop is made. But isn't the devil in the details on that? I mean, reasonable suspicion. Somebody might say, well, if I see this young black kid in a white residential neighborhood, that's reasonable suspicion. I don't think it should be, but isn't the devil in the details of what that means? I think, I, I think that if that's the reasonable suspicion because you're an African-American driving in a white neighborhood, that's bad policing, period. Okay. I'm not going to say it doesn't happen. I'm sure it does happen by bad policemen. But the majority of the people I know are led by intelligence and they deal with criminals that they suspect committing crimes. Let's talk a little bit about, and I know if, you, if there's something about these you can't talk about because of your current position, I totally understand and, and, and we'll move on. But uh, on the, the Breonna Taylor case, I think the first sort of question and it's one that there have been sort of some bipartisan support on is this idea of no knock warrants. Are you, do you think we should end that practice? And if not, why not? I don't like no knock warrants. I never have. And I've told my detectives here uh, at the state police, if you have a search warrant, try to catch the person coming out of the house or, or, or catch them away from the house and then go back in with them. Uh, I, I think no knock warrants in most cases should not be used but there are exceptions. And that's, that's what bothers me now is that people are eliminating no-knock warrants without any exceptions. But Can you give me an example of an exception that would, where you would? Okay, Matt, if, um, if somebody had your mother, father, wife, son kidnapped and they're mm -hmm. sending the message, I'm getting ready to kill this person, the last thing you want to do is knock on the door and say that we're the police were coming in. But you would have just you would have justifiable cause beyond a warrant. I mean that would be a that would be you would be able to enter that house because you think there's clear and imminent danger. You that the no knock warrants I think are not used in that case. They're used really in the case like Brianna Taylor drug cases mostly. Well, and, and I'm against most all no knock warrants in drug cases. But what if you have a Mexican cartel? working in Lexington, Kentucky, 
You know that they're barricaded. They've got weapons in the house. Again, but that's the clear and imminent danger. I mean, if you know they're barricaded and someone's trapped, like you could go in anyway. You wouldn't need a warrant. But we're saying the same thing, Matt. I think okay. there are exigent circumstances where we can make entry without knocking and announcing. But in most cases, and I'm in most cases, I'm opposed to no-knock warrants. Okay. But I think um, the Brianna and I don't know anything more than you do about that. I only know what I've read. But, you know, I think people are focused on the no-knock warrant, which was signed by the judge. But I have heard, and I don't have any facts to back this up other than what I've heard, that there are some witnesses that say that the police did knock and announce. So, you know, to bring that up, look, Brianna Taylor's death is tragic. No question about it. We're all saddened that, that a life was taken. But I think there's a lot of uh, false narratives out there as to what happened. And I just wish people would wait for all the facts to come out and then make your determination. What do you make of one of the issues in the Breonna Taylor case, in the David McAtee case? Uh, in Well, those are the two that stick out there. I'm sure there are others. Is the idea that there are body cams and they get turned off. Um, what is your thought? I mean, to me, a body cam can protect the police if, if worn. It can actually do, it actually can be the best evidence a, police di a policeman didn't do anything wrong. What's your take on these situations where body cams are turned off and what's your take on them just in general? I'm all for body cameras. I, uh, I was one of the first police departments in, in the area to get body cameras. I, I think they will help the police more than they will hurt. But here's, here's a couple problems. Number one, they're not 100% foolproof. They do malfunction. And if they do malfunction, then, then Steve Romans or a good defense attorney is going to say selective taping. He turned it off. Well, you know, if the officer did turn it off, then shame on the officer. He or she should be held accountable. But they're not foolproof. There are, there are some times where they just don't work. And then when, when do you turn them on? We had to make that decision here in J-Town. When does an officer turn the camera on? Because you can't leave them on 24-7. The batteries will run down. Or I just think it's unfair to be uh, have a body camera on where you're going into a men's room to, to release. <laughs> well, fair enough. Yeah, so that's, that's the reason to allow them to turn it off is just personal stuff. But what do you do? I mean, I get what you're saying about Steve Romines, and he will he will make sure to criticize what whatever. But I can also understand what he's saying in the McAtee case. There's four officers there, and they all just happen to have it off. At some point, doesn't that seem intentional? Well, let me say this: Steve Romines is a good defense attorney. I've known him a long time, and and uh, we probably see things a little differently. Uh, in that case, I don't know why the cameras weren't on. Those officers are working. 18, 20 hour shifts right now, could the batteries have been down or, or were they not thinking they were encountering uh, the public? Like, like what we do here, my rule or my policy is anytime you're encountering the public on an investigative stop or anything that has to do with investigative or, or, or criminal wrongdoing or whatever, you have to turn the cameras on. But, but do, I, do I require them to turn them on when they go into the subway to buy a sandwich? No. So. You know, I, I really would like to know why the cameras weren't on. Were the batteries down? Were they not expecting trouble? What are the reasons why? But, but to answer your question, I'm 100% for body cameras. And I heard uh, the governor complain uh, when David McAtee was shot, how he was appalled that the police didn't have their body cameras on. 
there's not a state trooper out there that's got a camera, <laughs> you know, because they can't afford them. Uh, we're, we're getting cameras here in J-Town for everybody. We've had to go through two or three because they're malfunctioning different companies. It's going to cost us $600,000 uh, over a six-year period of time for 53 officers. So I don't know that the state can afford body cameras for every trooper out there. Yeah, probably can't. Well, you know, I, I make this argument a lot. I always say, I actually, not only do I disagree with people on my side of the political aisle who say defund the police, I actually wish you had more money. But I wish it went for salaries, and I wish it went for training, because I think you all are underpaid. Um, and I think you can, especially in Louisville, where I think overtime has been abused, I think you can make it a more a fair and efficient system. So I'm actually for more money, but just used in a different way. But I also understand people who would say, okay, but you all can't have the sole discretion on when it's on or off. Because if you do, the incentive's always going to be, well, if I think this ain't going to go well, off. H how do you fix that? I mean, how do you make it to where people feel like, okay, the next time someone's shot, if the body cameras are off, I want to trust that that wasn't done intentionally. Well, there were a lot of questions in that, what you just asked, but as far as discretion goes, if it's a police encounter where you've been called or you're, you're approaching, even somebody on the sidewalk, I, they have to be on. There is no discretion. So you would have to, I would have to ask, why was the camera not on and find out if it was turned off or if it was just malfunctioning. I don't believe in that discretion. They shouldn't have the discretion to turn them on and off when they're encountering the public. But again, you can't leave them on for a 12-hour shift because the batteries will run down. But but uh, in most cases, I think they need to be on. Let me, let me go back to what you said about uh, earlier, we were talking about uh, hiring the best of the best. Well, number one, like I said, we are a microcosm of our community. And it's not as easy to hire choir boys uh, as it might seem. And it's really hard to hire people when we, we offer them low pay, low benefits, and no retirement now. So, you know, it's becoming even more difficult to hire the best of the best and retain them. Fortunately, here in Jefferson Town, we have a robust industrial park and we have money and we were probably one of the highest paid police departments in the state. So I can, I can attract a lot of great people from Louisville Metro who wanna come here and work for, help, work for us. So that, that's a problem as well. So we've gotta have recruitment and retention, I think is one of the biggest issues facing law enforcement today. Number one, it's hard for us to hire the best people because, because not only pay and benefits, but look, policemen have been vilified right now. We're, we're the bad guys in everybody's eyes. And it's hard to go out to a college or university and say, hey, come be a policeman because everybody loves you. It's just hard. <laughs> and it's even harder when you're trying to recruit minorities, which we need to be a reflection of the community, when you say we're only... We're not only going to give you low pay, low benefits, and no retirement, but you're going to be an Uncle Tom. Everybody's going to hate you. I mean, we need to change this rhetoric. And, and, and Matt, I'll be honest, I, I, I think this needs to be discussed among the community and law enforcement to try to make things better. But I don't think screaming back and forth at each other is going to solve anything. And, and I think right now that's all we're getting is just a bunch of, of uh, extremists screaming back and forth at each other. Well, on that, we agree. I'm, I think screaming at each other is the worst, which is part of the reason I wanted to do this. Now, this is not going to be an easy transition to me doing this ad, but I have to do this ad right now, if that's all right. You all right with that, Rick? 
My bookie. That's right, folks. Football is coming, and winning season means hitting all your parlays and props. Drew and I this year will be using my bookie. If you use my promo code Matt Jones, whatever you deposit up to a thousand dollars, they'll double it. You heard me right. Up to a thousand dollars, they will double it. You go to my dookie book, my not my dookie, mybookie.com. The promo code is Matt Jones, and you will double your first deposit. Mybookie.com, Matt Jones. Trust me, you want to use my bookie. Now back to Rick, who was just sitting there cheesing, laughing during the entirety of that ad, but that's all right. That's what, you know, you got to pay the bills, Rick. You understand. Yes, my bookie's actually good, though. All right, I want to go back. When you see people on the streets protesting, and I, I agree with you that screaming does little, but there are people protesting with very valid beliefs, opinions that are not screaming. They're just giving their position. Do you understand where they are coming from and why they are there? Absolutely. And, and I'm all about the First Amendment and peaceful protests because we've had them here in Jefferson Town. I, I, I've met with the organizers and I have, I, have, I have said to them, let us facilitate your peaceful protest. And we have done that. We closed Hurstbourne Lane down for an hour while they marched down Hurstbourne Lane. But I established parameters set the ground rules and said, hey, you've got to follow them. And they agreed to do that. So we had some very peaceful protests. But what I have seen in Louisville on a number of occasions is not peaceful and it's not lawful. And, and I think the police have to, to, have to come in, move in, and, and make arrests in that situation. Otherwise, it's going to be total chaos. And, you know, protesters are a lot like police. You have good protesters, but there's a few in the, in, in the protest lines that are, that are becoming criminal. They're doing bad things, burning things, throwing rocks, throwing Molotov cocktails. That doesn't mean all the protesters are bad, but you've got to stop bad behavior, just like you do in police work, you know, but you can't throw the baby out with the bathwater because not everybody's a bad guy. Uh, I, I was watching uh, and what's happened in Wisconsin and, and just on a personal level, I'll tell you something that's happened that really bothered me. And I want to see, do you have a different take on it? I really don't like a lot of the rhetoric, especially in the media about this kid who went up there and shot a couple of people. There's some videos of police talking to those folks and saying, thank you for being here when they were like, you know, quote unquote, protecting the, the, what the society. And then this kid drives from Illinois with the, weapon he ends up shooting two people and now it feels like it's a lot of people are very hesitant to criticize that action i would assume you don't believe this sort of vigilante justice that i worry is going to get to where each side sort of believes their vigilantes are okay i would assume you would be against that am i right you are right i'm against that and you know again law enforcement has parameters I don't like 500 people marching down Broadway holding AR-15s either. No, uh, me either. <laughs> I, don't, I don't like the opposing side coming to town with what they are strapped to their stomach. But we in law enforcement are challenged because there's a second amendment that authorizes that. So we can't say you can't do that. But, but those are the kinds of things that law enforcement is handcuffed because we have to try to be the peacemaker when you've got, and this happened when I was the state police commissioner down in Pikeville. We had Antifa 
coming to Pikeville and we had the three percenters or the, uh, the white supremacist one on the other side. That and wasn't that long ago, was it? That was just a few years ago, wasn't it? Ago. Yeah. And what we did is we set up uh, barricades and said, okay, you've got that side of the street. You've got uh, the other side, but you can't meet in the middle. And if you do, we're going to lock you up, period. We set ground rules and we held them to that. And fortunately, what worried me was as soon as a, if, if, if somebody were to dis, discharge a firearm, then that's going to total, it's going to cause total chaos. And that scared me because I had troopers standing between the two sides. Yes. So police are always blamed for, for, for these things, but they're never given credit. When the, and I'll give uh, LNP. Let me just say this. I want to stop that. You are given credit. Like I, even me, like I, 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 right now I'm sitting here wearing uh, a, a true blue hero thing for Scotty Hamilton, who was, who, who was killed a few years back. You are given credit. I mean, I, I know this last month has been a lot of negative police rhetoric, but there are many people who are very pro-police. I don't think it's fair to say you all get no credit. No, I agree with that, Matt, but I, you know what? I haven't seen um, any any professional athletes with with uh, armbands on that, that say Officer Tamaris uh, Bohannon, who was just shot and killed in St. Louis. Uh, you know, he's a husband, a father, and uh, you know, people don't realize in St. Louis this this year they've had eight officers shot. But again, I don't see I don't see LeBron James. Uh, writing their names on his shoes. So that's what well, the, the, I don't mean to cut. First of all, that's tra a tragedy in St. Louis, a tragedy. They've had eight and I agree it needs to get more attention. But who are you going to protest at that point? Those criminals get locked up. The people that kill those police officers go to prison. Isn't the issue, at least in some folks' minds, the difference in treatment? The people who kill police not only go to jail, they usually go to jail for a long time. And people that the police ranks that break the ranks and kill people should go to jail as well. Mm -hmm. But, but again, I mean, all we hear, of, well, you're, you're right. And I've probably had more people thank me for my service in the last six months than I ever have. So we do get appreciation shown by people, but it's just right now, it just seems like everybody's piling on the police. When again, out of 10 million arrests every year, less than four percent we have to actually engage in some sort of use of force so you know I, I think I'm all about dialogue I'm all about making improvement where it needs to be made but but you know let, let's talk about this and, and correct what we can but not but not blame the police for every wrong that's out there let me ask you about I want to ask you about the situation in Kenosha but I'm less concerned about the particulars of that case because there's a lot of stuff we don't know yet we don't really know there are facts we don't know so let me just ask you in general about a question I've always sort of had about police what is the moment that you all are taught or that you teach that fatal force is authorized is it when so I mean in that case, he's walking to his car. Let's say that you knew he was going to get a knife. Okay, let's just say you knew that. Is fatal force authorized then? When are people taught that fatal force is okay? We have what we call a use of force continuum. And, and we can use a lot of different methods to try to make an arrest. But when you perceive that your life or the life of others are in danger of, of of lethal force, then you can use lethal force. In that case, I won't comment because I don't know all the particulars. I'm the first to admit on first blush, it looks like maybe they could have done something different. But like I said on Terry Miners, I said, 
I don't know what was in that car. I don't know what the guy had said. Maybe he said, I'm going to the car to get my gun to kill all of you. I don't know that. Would but, you agree that his past, like there's a lot of talk about he'd been charged with sexual assault. All of that, though, is irrelevant for the question of whether or not you should shoot him. I do agree with what you just said. Yes. It okay. To do with it. It's the Im imminent danger, the threat to you or the public at that time. Yeah. So back to what you were saying, I didn't mean to cut you off. When, the moment that it's, it's when you believe you are in imminent danger. Um, is there, I mean, that can be, is that a subjective or an objective belief? Like, is it, are you teaching people sort of, this is when it's reasonable for you to feel like, like I would feel like I'm in danger probably before you would, cause I'm wimpy. Like, is there like a standard that it's supposed to hit? Well, I think it is objective. Uh, but, but, you know, every, every scenario is different. And I would like to invite you and, and Steve Romines to come and let us put you on, on our simulation training where it shows you have to make split second decisions. And, you know, it, it's shown all the time where someone with a gun to their side can, can raise that gun and shoot you within less than a second. So if you're, if you're a police officer, Matt, let me ask you this. Yes. Guys, guys By the way, don't put me and Steve in the same. We don't have the exact same opinion on this, but go ahead. But but I, I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you, what would you do if someone had a weapon in their hand, but it's down by their side, and you say, drop the gun, drop the gun, drop the gun. The guy doesn't drop the gun. What are you gonna do? Are I don't know. That's why I wouldn't be an officer, to be honest with you. I don't I don't think I have, to be quite frank with you, the skills or just personality to do that but I, I i freely would grant you that that's a difficult position to be in yeah. you know and i'll go back i think I'm, i meant to say it is subjective because we all perceive things differently and what what i might do might not be exactly what somebody else did and, and look here's the other thing and, and you know we in law enforcement today uh videos are good and bad we yeah. during our training i mean we show our officers case after case after case where Policemen are being killed in the line of duty. And, and that's got to have their sense of awareness heightened because they know that can happen. My, my worst fear is a uniformed police officer pulling a car over, not knowing who's driving that car. They don't know if they just robbed a bank, just molested a person, just killed somebody. They don't know. So everybody is on, on edge and cautious when walking up to a car just for a routine traffic stop. And that's extremely unfortunate, but it's real. And I think, uh, you know, that that's contributing to a lot of this. And, and let's just be honest. I mean, our, our society has gotten much more violent. Oh, there's, yeah. a lot, there's a lot of violence out there. And, uh, you know, to, we just have to admit that. And I think the police are being blamed for a lot of the things that are beyond their control. We, we and it's odd. It wasn't, we, things were better up until about, two years ago in terms of violence to crimes were going, have been going down for 20 years, really until the last year or two. Yeah, you're right. And, and, you know, we're becoming desensitized to it, unfortunately, but it's, uh, it, it, it's terrible when I see some of the things that are going on, you know, 14 year old kids being killed and yeah. 14 year old kids doing the killing. That's, that's pretty sad. Um, so I, I I'm going to ask you the question I have asked police officers, including mutual friends of ours a number of times. And I have to tell you, I've never gotten an answer that actually satisfies me. I hope you can give it to me. I have, a, I give police I, benefit of the doubt. I think a lot of people, even on my side of the political aisle don't, but I do for a variety of reasons. 
But one thing I've never totally understood is this, and I'm told that folks are taught, don't fire your weapon sort of unless you plan on finishing it. Like if there's not a sort of, so I don't understand why, like use the situation in Kenosha, why there isn't like a shoot him in the leg. Like why does every shot have to be to kill? I feel like that to me causes a lot of the problems. I would give much more benefit of the doubt if I felt like non-lethal force or force that was not shot in the chest why isn't that done more? Because I'm told you all are not taught to do that. We're, we're taught to shoot to disarm the threat. And, yeah, so why not shoot to injure and not kill? Because, again, I, I invite you to come here and, and go through some of these scenarios that we see on our, our computer here. But shoot, when you're in a shooting situation, number one, you, you could go to the range and shoot 100% every time you go to the range. But when you're in a shooting encounter, the, the adrenaline is flowing and the pumping and you've got, you know, it's just a tense situation. So to try to, you know, to focus in and shoot somebody in the leg, you know, they could kill you. But you, you teach, but you do teach people to shoot to kill. Like you could easily just as easily teach them to shoot to not kill. I mean, why, why, is, that the, why is that the standard? Well, we don't teach to shoot to kill. We, we, we teach to shoot to eliminate the threat. And, and we have seen scenarios where- What some, does that mean, eliminate the threat? It, 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 a lot depends upon the scenario. But if you've, got, if you've got somebody with a gun, you try to shoot them in the hand to, to shoot the gun out of their hand, number one, you're probably going to fail doing that. That's a tough shot, I would think, yeah. So you, we teach shoot center mass. Now, if, 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 if you have a scenario where you possibly uh, don't have to shoot, then that, that's, that's the best of all cases. But- but when you draw your weapon and you shoot your weapon, I mean, you're not trying to wing the guy. It's not like the old Western where he's shooting the gun out of the guy's hand. It's just nearly impossible to do that. So you've got to eliminate the threat. And that's what we do. We don't want to kill anybody. We don't. But sometimes that happens because you're trying to eliminate that threat. I hate to keep coming back to Kenosha because I know we don't know all the facts. But do you think there is some of the criticism I've heard? Actually, this is criticism I've said is I understand the first shot. I don't understand the next six, you know, go ahead. Well, again, that goes back to, have you eliminated the threat? I haven't watched that video that closely, but you know, when I watch the video first blush, I'm thinking, why didn't they do this? Or why didn't they do that? Like everybody else. But, but I'm not going to second guess the people without having all the facts, but I mean, did they find a knife in the car? Did they find a gun in the car? Was he, was he about to get his hand on that? But would that, let me just ask you, I mean, would that matter? I mean, like, if they found a knife, I mean, we, you have to put yourself in the situation. I want to give the officer the benefit of the doubt. Sure. If the officer, if I'm giving the officer the benefit of the doubt, if it ended up there was a knife there, the question of whether or not it was reasonable for him to shoot, in some ways almost doesn't matter if there was a knife there. It's whether or not it was reasonable for them, him to think there was, Right. Yeah, but but again, we don't know all the facts. Maybe the officer. No, we don't. We don't. Maybe the officer saw a knife or a gun or a grenade. Maybe. All that. Maybe. Yeah. yeah. Um, but, you know, all right. Go ahead. I mean, it, it, you know, with David McAtee, with Breonna Taylor, it's tragic that that these people are dead. We all agree on that. But you know, th there are things that lead up to that, and I, I just think we ought to we ought to really wait and and review all the facts before we make determinations on this. 
if you were, if you, Rick Sanders, were in charge of America, or at least in charge of America as it comes to policing, and there were two or three things that you believe the police could do, or two or three things that you believe folks who are sort of anti-police could do or understand that would make everything better, what would those things be? You know, I think I would like for police officers to, to be understanding of, of, uh, of bias. And, and we're gonna do that this year with some of our training. I would like for them to, to, to try and come up with better ways in which to engage the public to try to work some of these things out. And I would like for the public to do the same thing. I would like for them to be able to come sit at a table and say, what, you know, can you do this? Can you do that? Have you thought about this? Have you thought about that? And then, you know, let, let, let's sit down and discuss how to make it better. I, I'm pretty proud of my profession, but I'm the first to admit that we can always do better and we have to work on how we can make it better. We are better. We are better than we were 20 or 30 years ago. But I think we have to sit down and have dialogue and we can't be shouting back and forth at each other. And then the other thing I would like to see is some young person with a scientific mind to develop that tool that's going to work each and every time without having to use a gun to kill somebody. You know, you think about it, taser is the latest invention that we've had. And we've had that a long time. Yeah. That goes to 2010 or 2011. So surely to God, somebody out there can come up with a better tool. And the other thing I'll point out is taser is not the end all be all either. Those things only work about 35% of the time. So is that right? Wow. I'm often asked, why didn't you just tase the guy? Well, hell, we tried but it didn't work. <laughs> it didn't work. I understand. Some people seem immune to it too. I see some people just get it and nothing happens. Well, there's a number of reasons. Number one, if you've got thick puffy clothing on, it's not going to penetrate. If, if, you, if the probes don't hit, both of them hit, then it's not going to work. And it's just sometimes the, the equipment is malfunctioning. Do you, on a political side, I mean, I, you know, right now the, the, the debate about police sort of divides into Republicans take up for them, some Democrats criticize them, criticize them, and then people in the middle kind of do whatever they can. I would assume though, police probably don't want to be involved in politics because it can only, I would think it could only make your job harder, right? You're absolutely right. Uh, most police officers I know actually were prohibited from being in politics. Uh, you know, we, we need to be a neutral ground and, and we shouldn't be involved in politics. Yeah. Um, so do you think, like I saw the New York Police Union endorse Trump, do you think they should do that? I don't think they should endorse anybody. I think they yeah, should. Yeah, I kind of don't either. Um, all right, well, I, I, I want to do this because I think this is important. I've had a number of police officer friends of mine say to me, something you kind of said a minute ago, Matt, I don't think you understand what it's like and I do not. And I think that's fair. I'm, I don't know, you, you probably weren't involved in any of the protest stuff where the officers were downtown, but I bet you have been, or at least you know. Explain to people like me who are sitting here listening what it is like to be on the front lines of those kinds of things. Because I do think it's very important for police to be in, or try to be in the shoes of the people, but I also think it's important for people to try to be in the shoes of the police. What is that like? Well, I wasn't involved in these recent protests, but, but I have a son who's down there on the front lines. But I was involved in the busing demonstrations. I, I've been in law enforcement for 40 wow. years. Wow, <laughs> you're not that old. Come on. Uh, I was a young 21-year-old policeman, and uh, you know, I was standing there at Dixie and Valley being pelted with bottles and bricks 
and, and things bounce. And back in the day, we didn't have any of this protective equipment. Uh, so I do know what it's like. That's probably the most scared I've ever been in my police career was it is a Dixie and Valley when I thought they were going to overtake us and kill us all. So for these officers that are standing guard and having people in their face screaming and hollering and throwing bricks and bottles and Molotov cocktails at them, I think they've shown great restraint and they've been very professional in how they've handled these things. But but I pray for them every day because I just really am afraid that that it's you know somebody's going to get killed and and the police officer. And I've also talked and, and heard people talk about demilitarizing the police. You know, when you send a policeman out into a riot and he's got a, a helmet, a shield and shin guards on, that's, that's not militarization. That's protecting yourself. Do you and think I'm, they need to wear camo though? Like we're not out in the jungle. No, I'm not a big camo guy, but I do think that, that, you know, you can wear the protective equipment. That yeah, I get that. I, I'll take that back. The state police, they probably need camo because they're out in the middle of, of the woods sometimes trying to t track down a fugitive. Yeah, I can see that, but not in the middle of a city. Like, I, I do think there's a part of that that makes me kind of go, why do you need to wear that? Yeah, well, I agree with that, but I also bring you back to 1998 in L.A. where the officers were trying to subdue these bank robbery suspects who had bulletproof vests, helmets, and, uh, and semi-automatic weapons, and the police had to break into a gun store to to get the equipment to fight back. So Wow, that's amazing. Do you believe there's too, I've always wondered this from police. You believe there's too many guns out there? I mean, not so much. I mean, I understand. Let's put aside, everybody likes to hunt and all that stuff. But do you believe we're becoming too much of a gun society? I don't think, I don't think the problem is with the gun. I think the problem is with the heart. We just got too many violent people out there. But and, I mean, but the guns don't help, right? I mean, like, wouldn't you all love a world where people didn't have those weapons, like, that, that, I mean, like, it's not, it's one thing to have guns. It's another thing to have some of the weapons like the kid up in uh, Wisconsin had. Again, you know, police are the first ones to have to deal with guys marching down the road with AR strapped to their chest, you know, and we sometimes. So you're okay with them having it? No, I'm not, but I'm also well aware of the second amendment that gives them every right to have that weapon. And we don't have well, we, the wherewithal to, to, to stop it. Well, we could debate whether they have a right to have that weapon. Because, I mean, we, we, we're fine saying they can't have, like, flamethrowers. Well, yeah, but let me ask you this, Matt. You're, you're the chief of police in Louisville, and you've got 500 people walking down Jefferson with AR strapped to their, to their chest. How are you going to stop this? No, I don't know. That's why I don't like it. I mean, I, you know, I, I don't know what you do. I, I really don't. I, I think that that – I think one of the things that doesn't get talked about enough is how much those weapons – and right now, both sides of the political aisle have access to those weapons. How much that elevates all of these scenarios. You're talking about what happened on Dixie and Valley. It was awful. They were throwing Molotov cocktails in bottles. But back then, people didn't have those weapons. Now they do. Well, they probably had them back in the day. They had pistols. They had rifles. They, had all the they didn't have the kind of weapons they have now. You know, I mean, there's more of those weapons now than there used to be. Okay. Do you agree or no? I agree that there's weapons out there, but they've been out there since the beginning of time. I mean, people, everybody carries but a weapon. Not, not at the power of the weapons now, right? I mean, what we can agree on is universal backgrounds. I think that we need. Yeah, we to definitely keep, can agree on that. We need to keep guns out of the hands of people that don't need to be with weapons. And and I think because of the Second Amendment, we we can't go out and start taking guns away from people. I'll finish with this. Uh, 
we're all kind of waiting for the Brianna Taylor decision whenever that will come. Do you, what do you think will happen in Louisville? I mean, I sort of think it's unlikely the officers will be charged, certainly with murder, but maybe with nothing. We'll have to wait and see. If that's how it goes, are you worried about what will happen in Louisville? Yes, I'm very worried about what's going to happen in Louisville. And I think a lot of it's brought upon by this false narrative that people have been talking about for the last three months. Uh, people seem to think they know everything about that case, and they've already made their minds up as to what happened. I know Daniel Cameron. He's a good person. He's going to make the right decision. But that right decision is going to make somebody mad, either on the left or on the right. And, and I'm just concerned that people are not going to listen to, to reason and listen to him articulate why he's made the decision he's made, left, right, or indifferent. I mean, it's, a, it's, a, it's going to be a tough call. If he were to decide to charge the three officers with murder, would you support that decision? I don't know enough about the case. I think he has to rely upon the facts of the case. But let's say he did. I mean, you said you trust his judgment. I mean, on, we, we all are kind of assuming, myself included, that they won't charge them and who that will make mad. If they did charge them, I would assume there'll be a lot of officers mad. Well, Do you, yeah. Would you trust his judgment if that were the decision? I trust Daniel Cameron's judgment no matter what he decides. Okay. I, think, I think he's a fair guy and he's going to make the right call. But, but again, I think we need to wait for the facts to come out and not just make stuff up. Do you worry that if he did charge the officers, I've heard officers say, hey, everybody, there's going to be a ton of people in Louisville quit. And do you worry about that? That's already happening. We have officers quitting every day. And, and I think that's going to continue. And it, again, is going to back to what I said before. Uh, retention is, is a real problem in law enforcement today. It really is. We have guys retiring and quitting and driving trucks. I mean, so, yeah, it's already there. Well, Rick, thank you very much. Uh, I do, I really appreciate you doing this. I, I, I tried for a while to get police representatives and spokespeople to come on. And I, I, I was like, I promise I don't bite. I'll be respectful. And I couldn't do it. And you, uh, once you were kind of, I was put in contact with you, you were glad to do it and you were excellent. And uh, I really appreciate you taking the time. Well, thanks for inviting me. You've been very respectful and I'll be happy to have this discussion with, with anybody. I, uh, I don't profess to know all the answers and I'm not saying we're always right. But I had a boss tell me one time, he said, Rick, when you mess up, you got to dress up and fess up. And I think there's some <laughs> and I always try to live by that. I like that, Saloy. Well, as someone who has messed up many times and will probably continue to mess up, uh, I, I totally understand that. Thank you very much. We appreciate it. Thank you. Send lawyers, guns, and money.